The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. recognize that song? I'm sure you do. It's Blackbird by the Beatles. It's a special version of the song for children from a CD called Bedtime with the Beatles. It's an important song to me, as I will talk about today. I'm connecting some dots here, people. This one is likely to be all over the place. I have to approach today's subject from many different angles. If you just hang on, hang in there with me, maybe you'll see why. Or maybe not. The truth is that this is our 250th episode of the History of Literature podcast. This show has gotten easier and easier for me to do. I can crank these out now. I don't agonize anymore as I did in the beginning. The first few were rough. Not anymore. Now I feel like I know exactly what I'm doing. I know how it works. I know what I can do. I know what I should do. I am very comfortable coming to this studio, sitting in this chair, speaking these words. I'm not always comfortable in life, but I'm always comfortable in this chair, with this microphone, and with you. This episode is different. I'm not comfortable at all. I'm terrified. I will do my best. We're talking about literature in life today. Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. I'm just going to see where this one takes us. I'm glad you're here. It's the history of literature. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Let me tell you a little more about that CD that we're listening to at the beginning there. I was a young parent when I found it. I should back up and tell you that I'm too young to know the Beatles in real time. They broke up before I was born, but they were in the air throughout my childhood. Some of my best memories were my experiences with their music. Either it was in the background or I was actively seeking them out and listening to them. I had a recording of a documentary that I watched over and over. I was obsessed. (laughs) I was obsessed. And this is not to tell you that they're the best band of all time or that their music is better than anything else you like or that you should like them or anything like that. I get it, people. I know people who are obsessed with Elvis and I smile and nod and feel excluded. I'm not part of that. I know people who are obsessed with the Ramones. Same thing. I like a few songs, that's it. And people say, oh, the Beatles, that's not for me. That's granny music or whatever, fine. I don't need to hear it. I'm not arguing with you. It's my music, I like it, you don't have to, that's fine. It's not really the point of this show. What is the point of this show? That's a great question. I ask myself this all the time. (laughs) Because as you know, it's called The History of Literature, and in some ways that's the most boring title I could possibly have chosen. It's completely misleading in some ways. I always think there must be people who sign up for the show and think, oh, great, the BBC. 
will march us through the history of literature or some professor. This is a professor of literature. It's going to take us through one thing after another, like flipping through an encyclopedia, a nice literary encyclopedia, safe, reliable, predictable. And the idea of actually doing a show like that makes me want to go running outside and scream my head off. (laughs) No, 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 I don't want to listen to a show like that, let alone make one. On the other hand, I don't really like navel-gazing shows either. Why should anyone care about my personal preferences? Who cares? But there's a middle ground there, I think. There's a path that I thought I could take. I thought I could talk about books, the greatest books, the greatest authors, the most powerful fiction and poetry and philosophy, and maybe some film and music here and there. And I could analyze those writers, who they were, what they were trying to do, what their project was. Why did those fuckers pick up a pen? What compelled them to do that? Some of them got rich. Most didn't. Most didn't. What were they after? And then, why read? Why read a book? Why read at all? What do we get out of it? It's been so important to me. I wanted to explore why. I have a limited time here on this planet. And so do you. And we can be entertained in so many ways. Twitter can do it. I can exercise. I can eat. I can cook. There are a lot of ways to fill my day. Listen to music. Play music. So why pick up a book? And it's so easy to just say, well, you're using your imagination. Or, oh, you're exercising your brain. There are so many easy and obvious answers that people use when they talk about books. Oh, reading is good for the soul. Right. Right, that annoying voice people get, it's like mansplaining, but it can come from any smug person. It's not about gender. Smug-splaining. Well, you read books to explore other worlds. And that wasn't the answer. That wasn't good enough. I don't want to explore other worlds. I don't want to use my imagination. Or maybe I should say those answers just don't go as deep as I want. Literature felt like more to me. This stuff matters to me. Why does it matter so much? What am I getting out of it? Why is it at all relevant to my life? What am I doing here on this earth? And why am I spending time reading when I could be doing so many other things? And not just why, but how. If I can find an effect that a book has on me, if I can locate it, if I can isolate it and analyze that effect, how does it work? How does literature work? What does it make me think, and how does it make me feel, and why does any of this happen in the first place? What strange magic is at work here? So, 250 shows in, I feel like I have fewer answers than I did at episode number one. But I do know this. I know now that I'm not the only one. I am not the only one. I get emails from people all the time, hungry for something, searching Not sure if literature is the answer, but feeling like it's close. Like maybe it is, or maybe it can be. And they appreciate the show for taking the same approach. Once in a while, I get someone who says, Ah, I just want the facts. Usually it's, Thank you, Jack. You helped. You saved me. I needed this. And I don't know exactly what to say. Because that's not really something I ever anticipated. I didn't expect this to happen. I thought I was the only one. I thought I was a lost and lonely soul. You know, 
when I started this early, the early days, I went on vacation and something went wrong with the podcast host, with the stats. It disappeared for a while and I emailed the company and I said something like, what's happening? I'm in Iceland, but I think I can get to a computer if I need to. What's wrong? And it was some hiccup or some, some temporary glitch. But I can remember, I remember because I was getting something like 50 downloads a day. I was used to seeing 50 downloads a day. Maybe that was on the days when new episodes released and I had one scheduled and it, it only showed 10 episodes, 10 downloads. And I thought there was a crisis. 50 downloads a day. I couldn't believe there were that many people out there listening and I felt obligated. I felt bad. What happened? Did they all leave me at once? Are they not getting the, the podcast? <laughs> those poor subscribers, those those stalwart 50. <laughs> and you know, I was trying to get to a million downloads. That was my goal. It was like, how can I get to a million downloads if you're cutting my 50 down to 10? <laughs> 50 downloads in a day. We get 100 times that now, most days, more, I think. We're doing very well. I'm very thankful. So thank you all for that. Remember, I started out saying I'd do, um, do this until I hit a million downloads or made enough money to quit my job. Well, we're approaching three million now. So there's that goal met. I never thought this would happen. I need to get to my main point today, but I'm stalling because I'm not sure I can talk about this. I'm not sure I can do it justice. Let's go back to Blackbird. My point before I wandered off was that the Beatles meant something important to me. I think it was the idea that you could come from a working class background and create something. You could be a creative person. You could live a creative life. That was pretty much it. That's what I admired. The success, the fame and fortune, none of that really appealed to me. In my small town in Wisconsin, it all looked a little fast. I didn't want the cars or the women or the drugs. I didn't want a rock and roll lifestyle. I didn't want to go on tour. But that moment where those guys, young guys, songwriters, where they have an idea and they write some words down on a piece of paper and they sing it to each other and they improve it and then they go into a studio and turn it into a real song that people will listen to, the actual song. That's what I wanted to feel. Moment of creativity, that's what I admired. And then, because I was poor, and because I didn't know how to go about it, I dropped it. I went to college, got a job, roamed around for years. I knew what to avoid. I knew what I didn't want to be. I knew how to sabotage everything that would lock me into a life I didn't want. But I didn't know how to enter any life I really wanted. I didn't know how to go into those places I wanted to go. I was struggling to get by, and I read books. I was living a kind of wild life, traveling to 30 or 40 different countries, moving, grabbing jobs wherever I could find them, meeting people, falling in love, doing all that, but as a total vagabond and reading books. I read a book a day for many years. That was my goal. It was my habit. I'd wake up and start reading and by the time I went to bed, I had finished the book and had usually started another. It was a way of squeezing more out of life, I think. I couldn't slow my brain down. Books helped. 
It's like being on a, a ship in a storm. Books were the way I was able to steady my craft. And then I started to head toward parenthood, another thing I always wanted to do, and it blew me away. Both the joy that it brought and the anxiety and the feeling of being responsible for this little creature. I was reading to my son before he was born. I read A Wrinkle in Time, I remember that one. All kinds of books. My wife would lie in bed reading a book of her own or just closing her eyes and listening while I read to the baby. And somehow it worked out. He emerged as a little me. He had my temperament and my sense of humor and my logical side. I could recognize so much of myself in him. He's better than I ever was, which is not something I would tell him. Luckily, he won't hear this. I want to keep him humble, but it's true. He's better than I was. And when he was little, he was happy-go-lucky. He enjoyed life. He wanted to read, too. I don't need to rave about the miracle of a two-year-old. You all know what they're like. They're awesome. Babies are awesome. Children are awesome. We all get it. You have a child or a grandchild, and you know the feeling. You know the feeling because it's a human feeling. You know what it's like to gaze in wonder at a child that small and that precious and that adorable. I haven't mentioned Dostoevsky yet. I did an episode on Dostoevsky and didn't mention that he lost his infant daughter, and it destroyed him. This is from his biography. Quote, Dostoevsky and his wife left Russia for Western Europe in April 1867. So, just to add a note here, Dostoevsky was about 45 years old. Back to the report. Let me just read it. Dostoevsky and his wife left Russia for Western Europe in April 1867. And they remained there for the next four years. While in Geneva, Anna gave birth to a baby girl named Sophia. But the great joy that the child brought the couple was cut short by the infant's sudden death in May 1868. Dostoevsky's immense grief is evident in a letter he wrote shortly after the event. Quote, and now people tell me by way of consolation that I'll have more children. But where is Sonia? Where is that little person for whom I state boldly that I would accept crucifixion if only she could be alive. End quote. Those are the feelings we have as humans. We have the joys, we have the grief. I spent the first 20 or so years of my life having never attended a funeral. I was lucky. It's just how things worked out. I was too little to go to the funerals of my great-grandparents. My parents didn't take me to those, and I didn't have anyone else die on me until I was in my 20s. And my father-in-law heard that my grandfather had died, and he said to my wife, It is sad. It is life. Which stuck with me and put things in perspective. It stung a little. My grandfather was probably my favorite person in the world. I missed him. I still miss him, and I hated knowing he was gone. I was grieving. I hated all the things I wouldn't get to tell him and that he wouldn't get to meet the children that I hoped to have one day. And I didn't want to hear, it is sad, it is life. It seemed kind of flippant. But my father-in-law was right. It's the perspective of someone in their 60s, as he was. Everyone he knew had lost their grandparents. They were all beloved. 
And now the parents were going and they were beloved too. It's part of life. It's part of getting older. But Dostoevsky says, fine, that may be fine. We know that. But what about the abnormalities? What about sons who kill their father? That's the subject of the brothers Karamazov, as we're going to be talking about today. What about people who kill for no good reason? That's not life, is it? Is it life? Can we say it is sad, it is life? Do we say that about Dostoevsky's life? Where he was taken to a firing squad and told he's about to be shot, only to be told that no, he's going to be sentenced to a labor camp instead. Is that life? Is that life? Who says that has to be life? Monstrous leaders? Who put them in charge? Who put them in charge of us? And if we're pointing fingers, what about God? Where's he in all this? Couldn't he stop the son from killing his father? Couldn't he stop the horror of being forced to face a firing squad, to be made to believe that you were going to be executed? Couldn't he stop an infant from dying? It is sad. It is life. I came to appreciate those words when it came to the sadness of disease or the finality of death. But sometimes those words don't mean anything. They don't do enough. I feel like I left a loose end hanging here. We have the Beatles, we have Blackbird, what it meant. So let's take a quick break. I'll explain why I started with that song. Then we'll come back. It's all connected, people. I know it is. It must be connected because there's nothing else on my mind today. We will get there. Hang on. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. So here's me, a great fan of the Beatles and a new parent. I took a leave of absence from my job. I told them I'm going to be out for a month, which is my vacation days I'm going to use up, and then I'm going to be out for two more months after that so I can raise this little child. I'll take those days unpaid. And my supervisor (laughs) said, okay, thanks for letting us know. And apparently the boss of the place came down hard on the supervisor and said, hey, 
What's Jack Wilson doing? He can't just say what he's going to do. He has to ask our permission. And I just laughed in his face. Not literally, but I just laughed when I heard that he had said that. I wasn't going to ask. I was going to tell. I'm not asking. I'm telling. I've got a little baby. If you try to stop me, I'll just leave. I was lucky. I was in a position to do that. I knew they needed me more than I needed them. But I was ready. Nothing was going to stop me from spending those months with that little guy. And I sat with him and did all the things that parents do. We had a good time. He was happy all the time, which was amazing. He loved books. He would sit in my lap for hours as I read him things. And we'd read the same books over and over. And he got to the point where he could point at the word. Two years old, and he could tell me where on the page we were. But reading wasn't the important thing. It was the time we spent together, just being together, just overlapping our energies It calmed me down to be with him. It made me happy, and it made me proud, and it made me excited about the future, about his future. And we'd go to the grocery store together, him strapped into his little car seat, and we'd listen to the Beatles, and he'd sit in his crib, and I'd play the Beatles on guitar because I was going through a little revival of my own. I hadn't listened to the Beatles in 10 years or so, but the songs were like my oldest friends. The feeling, too, the feeling of creation— What would that be like to be John and Paul, just cranking out new things, having new ideas, turning them into beautiful art? I was as fascinated by that as ever. And at night, it was hard for my little guy to sleep. Nothing worked. He felt lonely. He missed the day. He cried. And I would hold him or sit with him or feed him or walk around with him. Parents know how this is. And I would listen to music to help him drift off to sleep. And sometimes he could do that without me there, too. And what you find is that either you can play one song over and over and over. Well, you know what? It's probably all different now. Now you could just make a playlist of all the songs that work. But I was working with CDs. And every CD, whether it's classical or children's songs or whatever I could find, they would have these beautiful lullabies And then they would have a song at some point that was up-tempo or had a cymbal crash or a drum roll or something. And I'd hear that part come in. I'd be in the other room. That part would come in and my little guy would wake up. And he would start crying. That would do it for him. And I'd curse the CD. It says lullabies. Why is there this crescendo? Why is there a march song on here? (laughs) It was awful. And then I found this one. Bedtime with the Beatles. I could listen to it for hours, thinking of the actual songs. Didn't bother me. Some people thought it sounded like elevator music, but actually Paul McCartney himself endorsed this one, and it didn't bother me. I loved it. It was soothing. Those melodies were so beautiful. They filled the room with their softness, and my little guy in his crib would fall asleep. So gentle in there. Every night, we'd wrap up our day, take a bath. We'd put him in the crib, put this music on. I would close the door. It's a beautiful feeling, but it's also hard. It's so hard when you have a baby with you all day long, and you're connected, and you're just in that zone 
where your body isn't really yours, time doesn't belong to you. Everything is about this bond you have with this other person. It's like being in love, but it's more than that, too. It's a complete self-sacrifice, except you're not a martyr. You're also gaining from it. It's like you're growing a plant, and you're the soil and the sun and the shade and the water. You provide everything, all the conditions that this little plant needs to grow, and then it does. And everyone who looks at the plant doesn't say, oh, look, look at the sun and the shade and the water and the soil over there. They say, look at that plant. That's what you get out of it as a parent. You get the pride of knowing what you've made. You admire the plant more than anyone. You never knew that before the plant came along that you were just dirt and some light and some water. You've created something. You're nurturing something. It's miraculous. And then you close the door. And the plant is on its own, breathing, rising and falling. And it's horrible to be alone. It's a horrible feeling. You might be glad to, hey, oh, I can finally check email, see what the wife is doing, take a shower, cut my fingernails, think, read, all these things. Grab some food, sleep. But you're alone now in a way that you weren't before. You didn't know how alone it could feel to not have that baby on your hip or in your arms, to not see that baby stare and smile and laugh and grow. The toddler, when he thinks he's playing a joke on you, when he's making himself laugh, and you see a side of him that you didn't teach him, but he's figuring it out on his own. And babies, when they dance and when they eat ice cream for the first time, there's just nothing better. And you subtract that from your day. You might want to stay in that room with that baby, just sitting in a chair while he sleeps. But you know the baby has to learn to be independent too and to grow. And you get to the point where I'm with my son and he's independent. He's a teenager. He's admirable. He's a young man. We don't hug anymore, though we're still very close psychologically. We're so similar. But that door closes. And I would have this feeling. You're in good hands, my son. You have this music. It's not going to scare you. It won't shock you with a sudden drum roll symbol crash. I trust it. It's gentle. It's going to be my substitute for a little while. You're safe. You're okay. I'll see you soon. And you close the door, knowing that you've done everything you could. So... Here's why all this is on my mind. I'm wrestling with something now, with myself as a parent, with myself as a podcaster, with myself as a reader, with myself as a human being, because I got an email a week or two ago. It was devastating. I won't read it out of respect for privacy, but it was a beautiful, heartfelt email from a man halfway around the world. He said that he lost his six-year-old son four weeks ago, and he's been listening to the history of literature ever since. He's found it helpful. And he was hoping I could do an episode on Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. So that is what we're going to do. We're going to talk about that book today, and I am going to do my damnedest 
to try to find some hope coming out of all this, to make some sense of it. We will take our last break, and then we'll talk about that book, Brothers, and some more about Dostoevsky, and some more about literature, and some more about life. Karamazov, a quick reminder of who we're talking about here. Fyodor Mikhailovich Dostoevsky, John Lennon to Tolstoy's Paul McCartney, a guy who lived like he was on fire, like someone had set him on fire and he was burning. He was born in 1821 in Moscow and died in 1881 in St. Petersburg, just shy of his 60th birthday. And in between, he lived a hell of a life. And I mean that both in the sense of it being an incredible life and in the more literal sense of his life being a kind of hell. His mother died when he was 15. In his 20s, he wrote a novel, Poor Folk, which made him a literary star. The impact of his book, of that book, his friends came and woke him up when they read. Let me tell you the story. Dostoevsky was already miserable even before he wrote the book. He was living beyond his means and addicted to gambling. Those are problems that chased him all of his life. He was betting on billiard games. But really, it was his personality. It was his addictive personality. So he thought he'd write a novel to try to raise some funds. Had to get himself out of his jam. And the novel was his only hope. If I fail in this, he told his brother, I'll hang myself. He gave the manuscript to a friend who suggested that he give it to a poet that he knew who was about to publish an anthology. So Dostoevsky gave it to the two men and went home. Soon afterward, his doorbell rang. It was the two friends. They had read the first ten pages and were ready to declare him a genius. The next Gogol. They had to stop reading, run to his house, ring his bell, wake him up, congratulate him. That's how good they thought it was. Everyone important in Russia read that book, and Dostoevsky became a celebrity, a literary celebrity, but it was kind of, he was kind of a dangerous one. It was called a social novel. It was about human beings and their suffering. Those are always dangerous to people in power. I mean, poor folk. <laughs> the title itself. He wrote another book called The Double. He was having seizures now. This had haunted him ever since his father had died. He was a Christian, too. He was running in socialist circles. He was trying to help, trying to make change, trying to push for reform. The Tsar didn't like it. Dostoevsky and a few others were rounded up, accused of reading and circulating works that criticized Russian political leaders. Dostoevsky said, I am a man of letters. I was reading these for literary purposes. Have my finger on the pulse. Need to know what's going on. I wasn't trying to overthrow the government. But the men, Dostoevsky and others, were sentenced to death by firing squad. And guess who headed up the investigative commission? I mean, other than the czar himself. It was a general named Ivan Nabokov, who, as it happens, was one of the ancestors of the fam the progenitors of the famous writer of Lolita. 
Vladimir Nabokov. I think it was his grandfather or his great-grandfather's brother. Nabokov hated Dostoevsky. It's one of Nabokov's blind spots. He had a few of them. He was kind of a snob, and I don't mean in a literary way. He looked down on people much of the time. Some of his criticism of Dostoevsky reeks of that. But some of it is valid and insightful. He said something like, Dostoevsky is the world's greatest playwright stuck in a novelist's body, which is kind of true. Dostoevsky is great at dialogue. He's not as great at scene setting. You don't go to him to read about the sky or the dewdrops on the wings of the butterfly. You, re- you go to him to read about people who are wrestling with ideas, with one another, and with their own demons. They're thrown into circumstances that would tear anyone apart, and they themselves are tormented, and they talk about it. They laugh at odd moments. Their personalities come bursting out of them, mainly through their words. It's mesmerizing and sometimes claustrophobic. Hemingway said, how can such a great writer be such a bad writer at the same time? And that's often said to be stemming from Hemingway's jealousy and his ego. But he might have been talking about something similar, about this dependence on dialogue, verbosity, John Updike said of a verbose writer once that he wrestles with his strengths the way other writers wrestle with their weaknesses. The strength being a facility with words, Updike could see the writer trying to keep that in check so it didn't get in the way. Dostoevsky is different. He was often writing for money, not just for money, but because of a desperate need for money. And he wrote fast, and he poured this pain onto the page. His need for answers, his search for hope, his attempts to make sense of everything, his anger, his bitterness, his recriminations. You wouldn't say he was wrestling with his strengths or his weaknesses. He doesn't write like someone trying to write a great novel. He writes like someone trying to survive. Where were we? The firing squad. They were lined up, ready to be killed, but it was all a trick. They were just put in that position to terrify them for sport. The Tsar commuted their sentence, and instead of being executed, Dostoevsky was sentenced to four years of hard labor in Siberia, a 14-day sleigh ride away. His mock execution was the day before Christmas Eve. He arrived in Siberia in the new year, 1850. Here's his description of his living conditions. Quote, in summer, intolerable closeness. In winter, unendurable cold. All the floors were rotten, filth on the floors an inch thick. One could slip and fall. We were packed like herrings in a barrel. There was no room to turn around. From dusk dusk to dawn, it was impossible not to behave like pigs, fleas, lice, and black beetles by the bushel. Keep in mind that this is a man already viewed as a great novelist in his time, a genius, the next Gogol. Sentenced to prison for what amounted to a First Amendment violation, as we would call it here in the States. There was no First Amendment protection under the Tsar. Dostoevsky wrote a book about the experience in, his experience in Siberia called The House of the Dead. He came out of it, returned from his exile, and wanted to read Kant, Hegel and Kant. He's trying to make sense of the world He had the New Testament with him all through his imprisonment, too. He was reading Dickens, looking for answers. And when he came out, he was writing. He got married. He took trips to Europe where he lost his money gambling. His brother and his wife died. And Dostoevsky was the only one who could support his stepson and his brother's family. 
He needed money. He started a magazine which failed, and he kept gambling, and relatives and friends started funneling money his way to keep him afloat. And then he wrote Crime and Punishment and The Gambler and The Idiot in two years. Those three books. He got married again. He finally had a successful business, releasing his book Demons on his own through the Dostoevsky Publishing Company, which brought in some money. He had children, including a son, Alexei, who was also epileptic, as Dostoevsky was. They had seizures that were not well understood. We are now about 20 years after Dostoevsky had been released from prison. He's becoming famous again, the novelist of his era, a literary landmark in Russia, and a guest in the salons of famous people. His health was failing. He was in demand. They wanted him for conferences and speeches and to serve on literary committees. He couldn't do it. He was too sick. But he had one more book in him, one more masterpiece. He started writing it, a story about a father and his sons. He had some demons to work out there, too, with his own father. All this life is going into this book. All of his themes, all his major passions, his views of the world, his views of Christianity, his views of God and Jesus, his views of religion, and his questions about all of it, his demands. And it all starts with this father. This is the plot of Brothers Karamazov, this father who has three, maybe four children. One of them is illegitimate, but rumored to be his. It starts with the father. Dostoevsky's own relationship with his father is in there too. Let me read from the University of British Columbia's website in their history of Dostoevsky's father. Quote, Fyodor Dostoevsky's father, Mikhail Andreevich Dostoevsky, died in 1839 while Fyodor was away at St. Petersburg's Military Engineering College. There were three conflicting accounts of the cause of his death, and the true cause remains unknown. The first explanation is that he was killed by his serfs. The second is that he began drinking heavily after his wife's death and lost his life to alcoholism. And the third and official cause is that he had a heart attack. Although his death is shrouded in mystery, it is clear from his son Andre's writing that Mikhail began to quickly deteriorate after the death of his wife, Maria. Mikhail was a doctor at Moscow's Marinsky Hospital for the Poor, and after the birth of his two eldest sons, Mikhail and Fyodor, he was promoted to collegiate assessor, which raised his legal status to that of nobility. He was a devoted parent and a well-educated and caring man, but he had a hot temper and could be stern and distrustful. Mikhail was also an extremely religious man, and he and Maria raised their children in the traditional Orthodox way, which was characterized by fear, rigidity, and obedience. In 1837, Maria died of tuberculosis, and it was after this that Fyodor's younger brother, Andre, noted how his father began to change. He states that when Mikhail became a widower, he began to speak out loud to himself, as if he were imagining that he was having a conversation with his wife. Andre cites a letter that his father sent to Fyodor, several days before his death as well, in which Mikhail's writing was filled with the anguish and sadness that festered, then grew after his wife's death. He states that Mikhail's loneliness nearly drove him mad, and that he started to drink, and his drinking eventually became alcoholism. 
of the three possible causes for death, Andre makes it clear that he believes that Mikhail's serfs murdered him. He claims that Mikhail, being ill-tempered, lost control, and shouted at his serfs in such a way that one of the serfs rallied a group together, and they attacked and killed him. Andre then goes on to say that when the police came to the scene, they were bribed by the group and the serfs went unpunished, while the official cause of Mikhail's death was determined to be a heart attack. The true cause of Mikhail's death has never been identified, but it is evident that the mystery surrounding it and the loss of his father had a profound effect on Fyodor's worldview and writing. Freud argues that the way in which Dostoevsky's epilepsy developed is directly related to how he internalized and understood the death of his father. Epilepsy is a theme in his work, and it is particularly important to the idiot. Parasite and the relationship between fathers and sons are also important themes for Dostoevsky, especially in the brothers Karamazov, in which the guilt for the death of their father is marked by conflict between his sons. End quote. It's like a template for the brothers Karamazov, the work that was the pinnacle of Dostoevsky's life, his longest book, the one he was building up to. It's like Shakespeare's Lear. It's about generations. It's about deep movements and currents. It's about that point when you get to the end of your life and you reflect back and you think about your own parents. I told you about my grandfather and how important he was to me. We knew he was dying. We went to the hospital. I stood at his bedside. You could see his eyes fighting and fighting and fighting and trying to hang on. But you could see his eyes reflecting, too, remembering, trying to make sense of a life. And I had this relationship with it for years. We'd talked about it. He remembered when I was little how he'd take me golfing, and he'd let me drive the cart, and how my sister talked him into letting her park it in the shed, and she drove it right into the back wall. And how angry he was when that happened, but how loving he was, too. All those memories of his life, the way they overlapped with my life. That's what I could be there for. That's what I could participate in. I held his hand at his bedside and hoped that he remembered all those good times of being a grandpa, being my grandpa. What a good grandfather he had been. And what it was like for him to watch me grow up and become an adult. And there was some of that. But that was only a part of his life. It was only the last... 20 years of his life, he also looked deeper to a place where I wasn't. And he said, where's my mother? Where's mother? And then he answered his own question. Oh, she's in the grave. And all I could do was hold his hand and cry with him about it because I knew his mother, my great-grandmother, and I loved her too. But I was not there with him as a boy as a five-year-old boy with his mother. I was not there for that. He was the only one left who could remember it. He was the only one who knew how important that was to him. I knew him as a fully grown man, an intact person on the verge of retirement, a golfer, a man around town, someone who went fishing and watched the Packers. I did not know him as a small boy in need, being taken care of, not being the caretaker. I loved that small boy, my imagination of that small boy, because I loved him. But it was his memory to work through. So Dostoevsky is there. He's writing his masterpiece, the work of his lifetime. He's sick. He's putting everything he has into this book. 
and then his three-year-old son dies. He puts that in there too. He publishes the work, everyone raves about it, it's the highlight of his life, the culmination, and then at the height of his fame and prestige, he dies. And the world has his novels, this wild life, this hell of a life, and the wild writings of a near madman are what we have from Dostoevsky. It's a testament to greatness plus panicky energy in a culture where writing novels was seen as the proper outlet. In another era, maybe he'd have been a rock star or a gonzo journalist or a filmmaker. Instead, he wrote novels. Virginia Woolf said she wrote that Dostoevsky's novels are, quote, seething whirlpools, gyrating sandstorms, waterspouts that hiss and boil and suck us in. They are composed purely and wholly of the stuff of the soul. Against our wills, we are drawn in, whirled round, blinded, suffocated, and at the same time, filled with a giddy rapture, end quote. James Joyce praised Dostoevsky, said, quote, he is the man more than any other who has created modern prose and intensified it to its present-day pitch, end quote. Nietzsche said that Dostoevsky was one of the happiest discoveries of his life. He said, quote, do you know Dostoevsky? Except Stendhal, no one was such a nice surprise for me, and no one delivered me so much pleasure. He is a psychologist with whom I find common ground. End quote. Hemingway said that his, well, Hemingway's attitude is reflected in A Movable Feast. We had part of this already, but here's the full quote. Quote, in Dostoevsky, there were things believable and not to be believed, but some so true they changed you as you read them frailty and madness, wickedness and saintliness, and the insanity of gambling were there to know, as you knew the landscape and the roads in Turgenev, and the movement of troops, the terrain and the officers, and the men and the fighting in Tolstoy. End quote. Sartre said that Dostoevsky was the starting point for existentialism. Gabriel Garcia Marquez was a fan, Haruki Murakami another. Kafka viewed him as his spiritual cousin. And it's the Brothers Karamazov that continues to fascinate, to impress, to draw people in. Faulkner reread it once a year. Orhan Pamuk said the first time he read The Brothers, his life was changed. He felt Dostoevsky, through his storytelling, revealed completely unique insight into human life and nature. Walker Percy, the great philosophical novelist, said, quote, I suppose my model is nearly always Dostoevsky, who was a man of very strong convictions, but his characters illustrated and incarnated the most powerful themes and issues and trends of his day. I think maybe the greatest novel of all time is The Brothers Karamazov, which almost prophecies and prefigures everything, all the bloody mess and the issues of the 20th century. End quote. Herman Hesse agreed. He said that Dostoevsky wasn't a poet, but a prophet. James Joyce, in another place, said, quote, Tolstoy admired him, but he thought that he had little artistic accomplishment or mind. Yet, as he said, he admired his heart, a criticism which contains a great deal of truth. For though his characters do act extravagantly, madly, almost, still their basis is firm enough underneath. The brothers Karamazov made a deep impression on me. He created some unforgettable scenes. Madness, you may call it, but therein may be the secret of his genius. I prefer the word exaltation. Exaltation which can merge into madness, perhaps. In fact, all great men have had that vein in them. 
It was the source of their greatness. The reasonable man achieves nothing. Philosopher, the philosopher Wittgenstein, read the brothers Karamazov so often he knew whole passages of it by heart. Heidegger had a portrait of Dostoevsky on his wall and said the book was the source for his own work, Being and Time. Freud called it the most magnificent novel ever written. He wrote an essay about it called Dostoevsky and Parasite. He thought Dostoevsky's epilepsy wasn't a natural condition, but the physical manifestation of Dostoevsky's own guilt about his father's death. He thought this was Oedipal, because Dostoevsky was like all sons, wishing for their father's death because of latent desire for their mother. He noted that Dostoevsky's epileptic fits began the year his father died. We don't have to go as far as Freud to see the power of Dostoevsky's father's death on him, on his life, and to see how those feelings made their way into Dostoevsky's book. In this intensified way, as Joyce put it, intensity here, I think, means no holds barred. You write like you're burning, like the people you know are burning. Everyone who's in love is caught up in a kind of madness, and everyone who's angry is caught up in a kind of madness, too. Resentment, religious fervor, poverty, anger, ambition. We are driven by demons, all of us, and we're spinning out of control. And there's no place for not feeling all that. There's no room to sit on the sidelines. There's no place for not jumping up and confronting these forces and trying to wrestle them to the ground. It's kill or be killed, psychologically speaking. If you don't take them on, let them emerge, they will seek you out and haunt you. You'd better fight your demons or they'll kill you in your sleep. Now, the plot of the book, Brothers Karamazov, is long and convoluted in some ways, but it has a framework that's simple too. I won't spoil it here, but it's a slow-motion murder mystery. The father, Fyodor, dies, and it's not clear who's killed him. He has three sons with two different wives, Dmitri with the first wife, and Ivan, 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 I say Ivan, it's Ivan, Ivan and Alyosha with another, who all have different personalities, and then there's a fourth, Smerdyakov, who is probably the father's son as well. Fyodor, the father, is a sponger and a buffoon, he's a schemer. A lot like Dostoevsky's own father, one suspects. Dmitri, the eldest son, is probably the closest in personality to his father. He's a drinker, a ladies' man, and he goes into debts too. He fights with the father. They fight over a woman, and they fight over Dmitri's inheritance. Ivan is the next oldest. He's a rationalist. He's brilliant. He's a thinker. He thinks his father and Dmitri are repulsive in some ways. Their dissolution makes no sense to him. It's disgusting, a waste. The father is more afraid of Ivan than of Dmitri. Dmitri will fight, his heart's on his sleeve. Does this sound a little bit like the godfather to you, with Sonny as Dmitri and Michael as Ivan? It's kind of like that, at least their personalities. But don't push the comparison too far, because the third child is definitely not Fredo. He's Alyosha, who's kind, gentle, spiritual. He's beautiful and very likable. He wants to be good. He is good. He's a Christian with sincerity, with faith, unlike his brother Ivan, who's an atheist. And then there's Smerdyakov, whose mother was called Stinking Lizaveta, a mute woman who lived in the streets. His name, Smerdyakov, means son of the reeking one. Fyodor's servant brings him, brings him in, and it's rumored, or brings him up, and it's rumored that Fyodor himself is the father. Smerdyakov has epilepsy. He's morose and brooding and always kind of irritated, sullen, I guess you'd say. When he was a kid, he collected stray cats so he could hang them and bury them. He likes Ivan. He admires his atheism. So those are the four 
the brothers. There are some other great characters, too. There's a few women. One of them, Grushenka, is lusted after by both Fyodor and Dmitri. She torments them both. She's playing with them. She has a fiery temper and also a need for independence. She's strong-willed, but she's a little softened by Alyosha, too, as most people are when they encounter him. There's also Dmitri's fiancée, Katerina. Katerina is beautiful and proud. This novel is so good, people. Can I just say that? Go read it if you haven't read it or if it's been a while. These characters are so vivid. They have their own desires and needs, and they're all in this kind of wheel of pushing and pulling one another in different directions. There are other characters, too. Father Zosima, who's kind of Alyosha's mentor, his elder. And there's a schoolboy, Alyusha. But the main plot, the main mechanism of the plot is this murder and investigation. There's a trial. There's a very famous chapter called The Grand Inquisitor, a story within a story. It's referred to as a poem that Ivan tells, but Alyosha interrupts him, so they have a kind of dialogue. In the story, Christ comes back to earth during the Inquisition. He performs miracles, but he's arrested and sentenced to death by burning. The Grand Inquisitor comes to visit him in his cell and tells him, that the church no longer needs him, no longer needs Jesus. And then he explains why. He tells Jesus why his return to earth is interfering with the mission of the church. It's a fascinating story within this story. It will make you think, and it's one that you can read separately from the rest of the novel. Maybe we'll do an episode just on this chapter at some point. But I want to turn to something else now, because I can't get it out of my mind. This poor father, my listener, who lost his child, and who has found some comfort in the History of Literature podcast, and whose favorite novel is The Brothers Karamazov. I read the email, and I did not know what to say, and I did not know what to do. I can write an email like everyone else can, my condolences, my sympathies, and I've found it, in general, it's better to write like that unless you truly know the person because all the other words that you try to come up with sound hollow and jarring, as if the writer is busy trying to write about himself. Oddly, it's not a time to avoid cliches. Cliches are fine when they're heartfelt. And so we say, my thoughts and prayers are with you and your family, because they are. They are. It's important to say that. But this was a little different It made me reflect on my own experience as a son and as a parent. I've known people who have lost their children, and it is awful. It is the worst thing in the world. doesn't matter what age it happens. Dostoevsky put it the best. I'd volunteer for crucifixion if she could live. I think most parents feel that way. I've seen parents at their child's funeral, and it's an indescribable Sadness and agony. I've seen them hitting the coffin with their fists, howling at the injustice. I've heard a wife describe the moment when her husband found their child in his crib after he had died, and she said, it's a sound that she did not know a human being could make. It's chilling. It's terrible. It's just beyond what any human being should be asked to endure. We have these things like this, Sometimes they're created by humans. The Holocaust, torture, war atrocities, murder, a mother killing her children. They're outside the realm of human understanding or human endurance. Literature can take us right up to that point. Literature will show us the reality of it. The heartbreaking reality will let us confront it, but it won't explain it. 
because nothing can. Nothing can capture the truly inhumane actions, the havoc that they wreak when psychopaths are in charge, when people with no empathy are willing to rip families apart. No one can really explain the horrors of slavery. They can show us the consequences. They can show us the effects. They can show us the how and the what and the what happens. They can't show us the why. And it's the same for tragedies that are not human-created, when it's an accident or a disease or just something that happens. We can see the what. We can see the how. We, can, we can't see the why. We see the stone arriving in the lake. We watch it disappear, and we can see all the ripples. But the stone falling in the lake has no explanation. We don't know from where it was thrown. It's as if it fell from the sky, and now it's gone. That's where literature can't go. Life can't go there either. There are mysteries that are beyond human understanding, and this is one of them. The death of a child is one of them. Here's Dostoevsky in mourning. He puts this passage into his novel. His son has died. And in the novel, he has a woman approach Father Zosima. This is in Brothers Karamazov. The elder says, What are you weeping for? And the woman says, I pity my little son, dear father. He was three years old, just three months short of three years old. I grieve for my little son, father, for my little son. He was the last little son left to us. This last one I buried, and I can't forget him. As if he's standing right in front of me and won't go away. My soul is wasted over him. I look at his clothes, at his little shirt or his little boots, and start howling. I lay out all that he left behind, all his things, and look at them and howl. And I say to Nikitushka, that's my husband, let me go on a pilgrimage, master. He's a coachman. We're not poor, father. Not poor. We run our own business. Everything belongs to us, the horses and the carriages. But who needs all that now? I'm through with everybody. And I don't even want to see my house now and my things. I don't want to see anything at all. Listen, mother, said the elder. Once, long ago, a great saint saw a mother in a church, weeping just as you are over her child, her only child, whom the Lord had also called to him. Do you not know, the saint said to her, how bold these infants are before the throne of God? No one is bolder in the kingdom of heaven. Lord, you granted us life, they say to God, and just as we beheld it, you took it back from us. And they beg and plead so boldly that the Lord immediately puts them in the ranks of the angels. And therefore, said the saint, you too, woman, rejoice and do not weep. Your infant too now abides with the Lord in the host of his angels. That is what a saint said to a weeping woman in ancient times. He was a great saint and would not have told her a lie. Therefore, you too, mother, know that your infant too surely now stands before the throne of the Lord, rejoicing and being glad and praying to God for you. Weep, then, but also rejoice. The woman listened to him, resting her cheek in her hand, her eyes cast down. She sighed deeply. The same way my Nikatushka was comforting me, word for word, like you, he'd say, foolish woman, he'd say, why do you cry so? Our little son is surely with the Lord God now, singing with the angels. 
He'd say it to me, and he'd be crying himself, I could see. He'd be crying just like me. I know, Nikitushka, I'd say. Where else can he be if not with the Lord God? Only he isn't here with us, Nikitushka. He isn't sitting here with us like before. If only I could just have one more look at him. If I could see him one more time. I wouldn't even go up to him. I wouldn't speak. I'd hide in a corner, only to see him for one little minute. To hear him the way he used to play in the backyard. And come in and shout in his little voice, Mama, where are you? But he's gone, dear father. He's gone, and I'll never hear him again. His little belt is here, but he's gone, and I'll never see him. I'll never hear him again. She took her boy's little gold-braided belt from her bosom, and at the sight of it began shaking with sobs, covering her eyes with her hands, through which streamed the tears that suddenly gushed from her eyes. This, said the elder, is Rachel of old weeping for her children, and she would not be comforted, because they are not. This is the lot that befalls you mothers on earth. And do not be comforted. You should not be comforted. Do not be comforted, but weep. Only each time you weep, do not fail to remember that your little son is one of God's angels, that he looks down at you from there and sees you and rejoices in your tears and points them out to the Lord God. And you will be filled with this great mother's weeping for a long time. But in the end, it will turn into quiet joy for you, and your bitter tears will become tears of quiet tenderness and the heart's purification, which saves from sin. And I will remember your little child in my prayers for the repose of the dead. What was his name? Alexei, dear father. A lovely name. After Alexei, the man of God? Of God, dear father, of God. Alexei, the man of God. A great saint. I'll remember, mother. I'll remember, and I'll remember your sorrow in my prayers, and I'll remember your husband, too. Only, it is a sin for you to desert him. Go to your husband and take care of him. Your little boy will look down and see that you've abandoned his father, and will weep for both of you. Why, then, do you trouble his blessedness? He's alive, surely he's alive, for the soul lives forever. And though he's not at home, he is invisibly near you. How then can he come to his home if you say you now hate your home? To whom will he go if he does not find you, his mother and father, together? You see him now in your dreams and are tormented, but at home he will send you quiet dreams. Go to your husband, mother. Go this very day. I will go, my dear. According to your word, I will go. You've touched my heart. Nikitushka, my Nikitushka, you are waiting for me, my dear waiting for me. The woman began to murmur, but the elder had already turned to a very little old lady. I told you about my son, how much time we spent together in those early years. We ate and we told stories and we laughed and we sang and we danced. We listened to the Beatles. Once we were at a grocery store at a Trader Joe's and a song came on, Drive My Car. And I said, do you know who's singing this? And my son told me, and I laughed, because he was three at the time, and I realized I was turning him into a little version of myself. And the cashier heard my question, but not my son's answer, and he said, oh, did he know it's the Beatles? And I smiled and said, actually, what he said was, it's Paul. 
And it was around then that I was thinking, my son is my best friend. There's no one who gets me like he does. And of course, I know that as he gets older, he'll have his own friends, which is important. And he needs me as a dad and not as a friend. But it's that feeling, that closeness, that deep connection that struck me at the time. And yet how small he was, how small and still still learning, still on his way. He knew so many things, and yet there was so much he didn't know. Didn't know because of a lack of experience. He could feel love for me, for his mother, for his younger brother, when his younger brother came along. But of course, he didn't know what it's like to fall in love, the way that a teenager or a grown-up might know. That's the funny thing about knowledge. Kids know all the Beatles songs or all the dinosaurs or all the Thomas the Train characters or all the planes used in World War II. But the knowledge like my father-in-law had, my father-in-law who had lost all of his relatives in a war, who was separated from his siblings and his family members and everyone who survived and who could, who could say, it is sad, it is life. That's the knowledge he had. That's knowledge too. And that's the knowledge that a three-year-old doesn't have. Smart as they are, they don't have it. And so we are in that world where on the one hand, my son was smarter than me, wiser, more patient. Once I flew off the handle and he said, Dad, are you two years old? Comparing me with the two years old he saw at the playground, putting me in my place. That's how he's been, observant like that, shrewd. And at the same time, he was tender and vulnerable. He wasn't yet jaded. He wasn't yet scarred. And he would have trouble sleeping. He didn't want to be alone, because none of us want to be alone. So I played the Beatles for him, bedtime with the Beatles. I can't always be here. I can't be here every minute. Sometimes you have to be alone. You have to be in this bed by yourself, even though it's dark. You need to sleep in here, because sometimes you have to be alone what I was teaching him. But here, I don't want you to be lonely. I want you to have some comfort. I want you to have this warm feeling from this music, which might remind you of me, or it might just be your companion for a while. It's from the Beatles, and it's their gift to the world. And now it's my gift to you. So you put on the music, and with a heavy heart, you leave the room. You leave that little guy in the bed, and the door closes, and your heart breaks every time. I needed that music as much as he did. And those days are gone now. They're in my memory. That's where they live. And in whatever, they're in whatever imprint they made on my son's mind at the time, on whatever they did for his life and his development. And you start to get sentimental as you get older, and you start to appreciate simple things like ice cream cones and rainy afternoons and being able to get together with the family for Thanksgiving. Those things start to seem like occasions to cry with happiness because life goes fast and there's a lot of pain. Those days disappear. They're gone. The door closes. And for this listener of mine, the door closed with more finality than anyone should have to bear. No one should have to endure it. I can't imagine enduring it. I felt lonely enough when the door closed, and I knew that in a few hours it would open again, and life would continue. And the day was lost, but a new one had begun. My son would be a little older, and he'd be changed. Innocence would fade. Wisdom, life wisdom, would settle in. 
and it has. He's different, but that's part of it. That's part of the door reopening every morning, a new chance for a new day. And for some of us, sometimes that door doesn't reopen, and that feeling of loneliness isn't temporary but permanent. There are no more days. They're all in the past now. I can't explain it. Literature can't either. Literature can tell us how it's happened to others and what exactly happened and the effects that it had. But it can't tell us why. No one can. And that's all we can do, is to say that others have gone through it too. Dostoevsky went through it twice. We can all share in the feelings We can all share in the empathy. We can all share in the anger and the grief and the confusion and the bitterness and the healing if it comes, when it comes. We are all here for that because we are all part of the human condition, the ups and the downs, the joys and the heartbreaks. We are all here for it. We can't escape it. We're here. And that's what literature can do just like that's all that I can do, just like that's what the music could do when I had to leave behind my child, my son, in that room. Literature says you might be lonely, but you're not alone. Somber note for the History of Literature podcast. Thank you for being here. Thanks to all of you. 250 shows. Let's see if we can do another 250. I'm going to play another song here at the end. It's by Billy Joel. I have a kind of hate-love relationship with Billy Joel, like a lot of people. I thought he was terrible. Back in the day, too poppy, too mawkish, kind of a joke. And then I became a father, and he was on Sesame Street, and my son liked that segment. And I started to like it, too. Like, hey, there's Billy Joel singing away, wearing his sunglasses, helping my son learn the alphabet. Thanks, Billy. And then his songs would come on the radio, and I'd be like, why did I ever hate this? What did hating do for me? It's not fun to tear things down all the time. This is catchy enough. It seems sincere. There are some good stories in these songs. It seems like Billy Joel's heart's in the right place. And then when I was researching this episode, and by research, I meant... Some late night roaming through books and the internet, trying to find some meaning, trying to make sense of the world. I ran across some sites where parents are grieving after the loss of their child, and this song came up. This song by Billy Joel. It's a beautiful song, a sentimental song, but sometimes I'm in the mood for sentimental, just like sometimes I'm in the mood for nostalgia, and sometimes I'm in the mood for guilty pleasures. Sometimes the sentimental is needed. 
The words here are simple but beautiful. I cried when I heard it, and I needed to cry because I felt so bad for our listener, and I didn't know what to do. So I'll play that song, and then we'll go. We're a member of the Podglomerate Network. I didn't want to forget that. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Time to close your eyes And save these questions for another day I think I know what you've been asking me I think you know what I've been trying to say I promised I would never leave you And you should always My angel, now it's time to sleep And still so many things I want to say Remember all the songs you sang for me When we went sailing on an emerald bay And like a boat out on the Rocking you to sleep. The water's dark and deep inside this ancient heart. You'll always be a part of me. My angel, now it's time to dream And dream how wonderful your life will be Someday your child may cry And if you sing this lullaby Then in your heart there will always be a part of me Someday we'll all be gone But lullabies go on and on They never die That's how you and I will be Good night, my angel
the Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.